we're learning so much about how the brain organizes information. So the fact that you're using your own handwriting, like you have a whole huge developed section of your brain dedicated to your own handwriting. Hello, friends, and welcome to The Block, the Building, Learning, and Organizational Culture podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Kirby. On today's episode, I talked to Leslie Early. With over 10 years of elementary education teaching experience, she's just successfully made the transition to a corporate instructional designer. She also hosts the wonderful That's Awesome ID podcast. Today, we talk about some of the things that we as teachers bring with us to LND, including ideas about learning objectives, pedagogy and learning styles, and what research and people in the field of LMD have to say about these sometimes controversial topics. So please enjoy this episode after a brief word from our sponsor, Verisana. Your business needs a better way to train. The better that your team needs is training that leads to performance. Verisana is interactive and repeatable, so your employees can return to lessons as many times as they need to. And we optimize the training so they and you can review their progress. The power of mobile makes it possible. Our team has decades of experience and expertise. We do it because we've been where you are. Verisana, the better way to learn. Hey, Leslie, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Bright and early over here. (laughs) (laughs) It is not bright here, but it's still relatively early. Yeah. (laughs) So let me start with my first question that I always ask my guests, and that's just tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got into instructional design, and then any fun facts you want to share too. Oh boy. Well, I was a teacher, mostly teaching elementary students for about 10 years, and then um, decided, you know, 10 years was a good run. So (laughs) I started looking (laughs) for something else, but I really loved curriculum development and the creative side and and helping people achieve, you know, their learning goals. So I kind of transitioned that into instructional design because it keeps all the things that I liked about teaching without the in-classroom chaos that you have to sometimes go through as a teacher. So, oh yeah. Um so yeah, so I've been kind of transitioning. I I just landed my first full-time corporate ID job, so I was super Yay. excited about that. Yeah. Awesome. And then um, let me think, a fun fact. Well, oh, sure. uh, I, this is my, you, no one can see the camera really, but I'm wearing a shirt that has sloths on it. So yes. <laughs> I have quite a slo- quite a collection of sloth things, including socks, shirts, stuffed animals, obviously, a heating pad, many things. Oh, I'm a sloth so enthusiast. You're into sloths. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I will say, because I can see you and the, the listeners can't, that this is not just like a sloth shirt. It's like a button-up shirt. It's a dress shirt. Sloths on it. Yeah. yeah. It's a fancy sloth shirt. It is. It's fancy. I love it. And I feel like this is my fashion still is hanging over from my elementary school teacher <laughs> days. So. Yeah. Well, my fashion has gone from like workwear to like hoodies and what I like to call nice sweatshirts <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I'm working from home. So, you know, yes, it's Ath- all relative. Athleisure. Yeah. Yes. That's what they call it without the af part mostly. <laughs> yeah. Just leisure. Yeah. <laughs> So I do want to say for our listeners who don't know you that when I think of someone who 
has transitioned from teaching to instructional design, you are a great example. I just have to say that when I first saw you on LinkedIn and connected with you, you had posted, it was like an outer space Photoshop project. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is so cool. I need to connect with her. Like she's somebody in the field I need to connect with. And so I connected with you. And then when I was talking to our mutual friend about, you know, kind of how hard it is to find guests who really want to talk about and are passionate about instructional design, she sent me the presentation for the Central Ohio ATD Emerging Professionals Showcase. Mm -hmm. And you were presenting there too. I was like, wait, I just connected with her on LinkedIn. And then last week I heard you on Erica Zimmer's The Learning Journal podcast. So I just want to say like, as far as making a successful transition, Leslie is someone to emulate and, and learn from because she was out there before she even had a job. Like people were noticing her and her professional brand on LinkedIn before she even nabbed that job. So good job. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, like I said, um, going the Photoshop thing is like, I just love being creative and I love learning new things. Like that's just like, I will spend too much money, like taking courses and like doing things and just like <laughs> buying books and like things that maybe I'll never even look at, but I just want to have it because I might want to learn that someday. Sure. So, um, sure. so I'm like obsessive in that way. So, and then I also know, I mean, I'm not a young person really anymore. I would say I'm getting towards middle age. So I have quite a bit of experience with like fandom and like yeah. these other things that are not necessarily professional, but they're online communities. So I think that's where my impulse to be like a content creator or engage gotcha. with people came from. It's like, I'm taking like things that I learned in my twenties in Facebook or like Tumblr. I mean, Tumblr is kind of, I don't know, hot topic to bring up, I guess. Cause like some weird people are on Tumblr, but you know, there's a lot of just like fandoms on Tumblr too. Yes. So innocent fandom. So that's kind of my experience yes. with Tumblr. And so I guess when I got in LinkedIn, I just started doing the same behaviors. And I was like, well, I'm just yeah. going to share what I'm creating and be passionate and find other people who are passionate about the same things. And, and you know, I guess I just have some practice with that. So it was natural for me yeah. to just get on there and, and start, yeah. start, yeah, moving and shaking, I guess. <laughs> just share it. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I feel like we could talk about your transition from teaching to instructional design all day, but you just talked to Erica Zimmer about that on her podcast. And we talk about that a lot here on the show. So I kind of want to move a little bit past that, right? And I think that there are some things that as former educators, I won't necessarily call them all learning myths that we're going to talk about today, but there are some things that we learn as educators that we bring with us to instructional design that we either have to kind of tweak mm -hmm. or have an unpopular opinion on sometimes or just pitch, right? And the first one I want to talk about was what you presented on at the Central Ohio ATD Emerging Professional Showcase. And that's this whole idea of andragogy and pedagogy, because just last week I saw a post that was mad about job descriptions mentioning pedagogy because that's not what we do in instructional design. So tell me a little, just briefly about your presentation and kind of your thoughts on this whole andragogy versus pedagogy argument. 
if you look up the term andragogy, which is, I guess, at this point, synonymous with adult learning theory, really the only group of people who use this term, it's almost exclusively used in organizational training circles. So outside of L&D, nobody knows what this means or, you know, how it's how it's supposed to be different from pedagogy. So, I mean, I would say it is a legitimate thing. It's a legitimate theory. I mean, Malcolm Knowles came up with this back in late 70s, early 80s. And trying to describe for the purposes of training how to approach adult learners, which I get, that's legit. But now it's become obsessive, I think, of like that this is totally different from pedagogy. And in my studies, it came across as andragogy being teaching of man, or they're looking at the Greek root of the word, right? Like andragogy means teaching a man and pedagogy means teaching a child, which is great. That's fine to look at like the etymology of where this came from, but almost nobody uses pedagogy in that way these days. Nobody's talking about children exclusively when they use the term pedagogy, especially because this term is used all the time in higher education. Wow. Yes. So absolutely. And so, I mean, and the principles of andragogy are like, you know, adults need to be involved in the planning of their instruction. Their learning needs to be based on experiences. They need to be interested in the subject matter. And also they, the learning should be problem centered. So all of these four things, though, you could easily say that should be happening in a classroom, no matter what the age of the student so really, andragogy is just like problem-based, or I would call this project-based learning if I was talking sure. about it in the classroom. Sure. So I don't want to say they're completely different because I think there's a lot that overlaps. And I just don't understand 100% why people in L&D are so anti-pedagogy, or maybe there's just a misunderstanding of what pedagogy means in the full scope of like education. <laughs> No, I completely agree with that. I think that of all the red flags in a job description, that should not be one of them. <laughs> that one's that one's okay. Like that's okay if you see that in a job description, right? Yeah, because again, I think pedag- especially if the job description is for something in higher ed, like it would make sure. perfect sense for them to be talking about pedagogy even if the position they're looking for is an instructional designer. If you're in that world, they're still using the term pedagogy just to mean whatever method of teaching. It doesn't matter who you're teaching, just this is a method of teaching. So, yes, absolutely. So the next one is now this is definitely not a learning myth, but this is something that we both talked very briefly before this about how it's such a hot topic right now. And that is the idea of learning objectives. And should they be placed at the beginning of every learning experience, whether that's in-person, e-course, what have you, what are your thoughts? I mean, I don't know if I've been in a corporate ID setting and have enough experience with this to really know or say with any certainty, but I mean, my... My intuition is telling me that probably context is is the most important thing. 
If we're like, for instance, I'm working on a project right now that's basically for civil engineers, you know, mm-hmm. to to be able to do their job safely, they need to learn certain mathematical formulas and how to apply them. And that's very knowledge-based, right? Like we're not trying to get a behavior out of these civil engineers. We're just saying, this is the information you need to know to do your job safely or well. And there's learning objectives. And in that case, it makes sense to have the learning objectives because it's almost, it's very similar to like an academic course, which I think learning objectives make sense in. But if it's like, I I can see where people get in a kerfluffle about it is like if you're trying to teach something like soft skills or you're trying to change a behavior, putting those learning objectives right up front at the beginning maybe takes out some of the experience-based journey of what that would be. So yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, to me, I think it just depends on the context of what you're trying to achieve. No, I completely agree. I think that you kind of hit on something that the safety training is a little bit more to kind of go with schools of thought, it's a little bit more behaviorist, right? And so it's important to have kind of those, you know, maybe Bloom's taxonomy, behavioral based objectives, right? To be able to define something or describe something. But like you said, if you're taking an annual compliance sexual harassment training to say, oh, by the end of this course, you should be able to define sexual harassment, right? Like that's, it just seems, it seems odd. It seems oddly placed. What I like to do in those cases is use some learning objectives from the effective domain that are kind of structured in a way that is designed to change an opinion or a feeling or a moral. And they have kind of those more abstract kind of ideas. So like, instead of starting with like describe or define, they start with like respect, Mm -hmm. right? And so they're a little bit different, but as far as As far as perspective, what I've noticed is that the learners by and large don't care if the objectives are there or not. That's not true of all learners because you get some really good ones or you get some really, you get the kind of people in like your classes that want to know why they have to take this training, right? And so that does a really good job of answering that question Mm -hmm. from the very beginning Mm -hmm. because then the expectation is set. But by and large, you've got people, especially with like compliance or onboarding training, they know that no matter what, they have to do it anyway. So the objectives are just like an extra thing to get past, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that if you're doing a good job of creating successful, engaging content, that it can be helpful. But from the learner's perspective, it doesn't always matter. I think that from the designer's perspective... It's hugely important to have them somewhere, right? right? So even if you're not putting them at the beginning of your course, you need to know when you start designing this whatever, what the objectives are, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that's what I think that's what I've seen people talk about is that learning objectives are for the instructional designer and not for the learner. And if you put them in front of the learner, you're basically putting your learner to sleep. But then the other thing I wanted to say is, uh, it's kind of like we've all been trained if we all went through the American education system and how to um, present your ideas to somebody and in your know, basic essay format, it's like you're going to tell somebody what you're going to tell them and then you tell them and then you tell them what you just told them. 
Like that's the introduction, body, and conclusion, yeah. right? So I think it makes sense that this is almost an affordance or this is almost just an expected structure of how we, sure. how information is presented to us. We're expecting some form of introduction, some form of, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And if we don't get that, even though maybe to some people it seems unnecessary, it might cause anxiety, <laughs> you know, like if you, if you don't tell your learner what, what you're going to tell them, even if they can yeah. kind of assume it, it still might be a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm just thinking out loud here. I don't know for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't really have a good answer either because I've worked at places where it was like, you better put the learning objectives on the first slide or we'll fire you, yeah. you know, like that, that very serious treatment of it. But then I've also worked at places where it's like, eh, do what you want. Yeah. You're the designer, you know? And so I think too, another way to kind of consider it is that they don't have to be a bullet pointed list. Right. Right. And maybe that's where people struggle is that they think of them as like this long list of like bullet points of do this, do this. And yeah, that might be boring. But if you have a video based course, then somebody comes on video in the beginning and says, here's what you're going to learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe more boring than the actual content, but less boring than that bullet list, right? Yeah. I talked to Chris Syracuse about cognitive load theory on my last episode, and we were talking about this idea of having a schema of where to put your information when you're learning it. So I think maybe that's also part of it. It's the, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, is basically building the box of, so these are the boundaries of what you're going to learn, so that when you're learning it, you're not, you have a place to put it. Even if it's a temporary place in your working memory, there's a place to put it. So. Yeah, I don't know. So now the more I'm talking about it, I'm thinking, yeah, they probably are a good idea, except for maybe certain situations where you can skip them. But yeah. But yeah, we'd love to hear everyone else's ideas when I post this podcast, for sure. Like, let's let's chat about it. Yeah. Let's comment on it. Tell us what you think. (laughs) You guys are horribly wrong. You have no (laughs) idea what you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) We we welcome all opinions, right? Right. (laughs) However, maybe we don't welcome all opinions on this last one. No, I'm just kidding. Um, kidding, kidding, not kidding. Save the best for last. And that is learning styles. Yeah. Every child has a style in which they learn. And you must design instruction to that style. Now, that is, that is, I will, I will say that that is how my mom was taught learning styles. She is a high school foreign language teacher. And that was how those were taught to her. But Leslie, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you elaborate. Well, uh, yeah, as a teacher, I also was very familiar with this, uh, might even call it a pedagogy, but (laughs) um, yeah, I was very familiar with this theory of, of learning styles. And I sort of always interpreted it as, um, there's multiple ways that people learn. And I um, always try to do like a shotgun approach of like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to cover this material in multiple different ways, uh, deliver it in multiple different ways, and then hope that that is a, that net is cast and people or the students learn in whichever way is easiest for them, or at least they pick it up in different ways and try to integrate it, you know, 
for whichever way is best for them. But as I was like sort of looking into this, that I, I was essentially a non-essentialist believer in, in learning styles, but <clears throat> there are essentialists. And I think that's where you get into trouble because essentialist people who believe this essentially to be true about learning styles will, they will, depending on each student, they kind of label each student as having whichever learning style and then only or try to mostly teach in that learning style to that student so that the student's not getting exposed to, you know, if you decide this is a visual, visual learner, then you're going to give them a lot of visual stimuli and not so much verbal or tactile stimuli, which is a detriment to that student, right? I think that's where the, the main issue is. It's not that, yes, we can all agree maybe that people can learn things in different ways or have mm-hmm. a preference for learning yes. in certain ways. I love that word. But That's what I always say. Yeah, yeah. it's like a preference, but that we're not overemphasizing it and we're not excluding people from learning in other ways just because we've labeled them as a certain type of learner. So that's my two cents on that. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. No, I remember I got my master's in curriculum and instruction and we'd learned, we talked all about learning styles. And then I went on for my PhD in instructional design. And one of the first classes I had was like, learning styles are a myth. And I was like, whoa, hit the brakes. What? Right. (laughs) And so basically the argument in that class was that, like you said, for the essentialists, that there is not only one way that people learn. For most people, they can learn multiple different ways. Like you said, they just have a preference, right? And, you know, for me, it was reflecting on my own experience where, I am terrible when someone is lecturing and I'm just sitting there listening. I don't retain a lot of information at all. Does that mean I can't? No. And especially as I've gotten older, I listen to podcasts a lot now. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that if I was really gung-ho that my learning style was visual, I wouldn't be able to sit there and listen to a podcast and retain anything, right? Mm-hmm. I was still able to listen to lectures and I would just write down, you know, people would make fun of my notes, but I'd write down almost everything that I could capture that the person was saying, because that's how I best retained the information for me. Mm-hmm. But writing stuff wasn't in those big three learning styles. So I was like, I don't know what I am mm-hmm. because I write stuff down. Like that's a big part of how I learn. So I always found them a little problematic for that because I'm like, I guess I'm visual because I have to see my own words. Mm -hmm. But like, it was very much more when I learned about the idea of multiple intelligences. Mm -hmm. So like the, there's the big three, right? Like visual, tactile, audio, but then there's also like inter and intrapersonal Mm -hmm. where you learn better by yourself or with others. And then there's like verbal, musical, natural. And then there's just all these other that describe the preferences Mm -hmm. that people have for learning. And I'm definitely a verbal and a musical learner. And, and that made so much more sense to me when I learned about those, because it was so much more multifaceted too. Yeah. 
And I think if people want to teach and reach a lot of different preferences to maybe go with that model instead, because it's got so much more that it offers in terms of, you know, reaching people. And I remember too, when I told my mom, I was like, mom, you got to read this article that learning styles are amazing. Yeah. She was like appalled too. And luckily she was, she, she was pretty non-essentialist. She just thought that she had to teach all three different ways yeah. all the time. Yeah. And so, you know, oh, I gotta, I gotta have all the variety yeah. here. It was a very interesting conversation to have with her, but I, I think I convinced her that like this, I like how you put it. The essentialist view of learning styles is like, it's pretty outdated. From the research I've looked at, they haven't found any hard, solid evidence that suggests that there's only one way people right. retain information. Right. And and the danger of anything essentialist, though, is that when people take it too far, you know, essential, real essentialist essentialists about learning styles, they believe that your learning style is unmutable like it does not change you inherit it so like you're basically born with this and you can't change it and depending on what learning style you have it can affect your brain functioning and it can predict your academic and career success so and and the most essentialists are people in early childhood early education so like from pre-k through elementary we're talking and probably lower elementary Mm-hmm. So they're looking at these little, little kids, you know, toddlers to like second grade. And they're saying, I already have predicted your academic and career success because I've labeled you a certain type of learner. And I'm only going to teach to that learning style. Like, that's like, you're, you're depriving these kids of like so much opportunity for learning at that point And, and giving them the benefit of the doubt. So I think that's where the real danger of being an essentialist in this learning style debate presents itself. Well, and when you put it that way, and and you think about early childhood, I mean, the way that you just described learning styles is almost directly to me in opposition of like the Montessori method, right? where you kind of let the kid decide where and how and what they want to learn. But then it's also kind of opposite of even just like we were talking earlier, project-based learning, where it's like that exploration and, you know, a lot of autonomous learning doesn't fit into a learning style, No, right? So it makes it problematic just in that, I think. Yeah, because it gives, it's from the old, I think it's the old school model of teaching where the teacher is, you know, delivering the knowledge, you know, I have all the knowledge and I'm delivering it. But, and I think that's also why there's a misconception in L&D about what teachers do, because when these people were children, that's probably the educational experience they had, but it's changed a lot. Like that's not, I mean, the teacher's facilitator is the new thing, you know, like, yes, or it should be. That's kind of the goal of like the teacher's not bestowing knowledge anymore. The teacher is like helping students learn how to learn basically. So yeah. And so learning styles don't work because it's not the teacher's responsibility to be like, I'm only going to give you visual input because I think that's, that's how you learn best. Yeah. That's a great point because I mean, think about all the technology that we are able to use now. Like what is VR? What learning style is VR? It's, it's all of them, right? Like, (laughs) yeah. 
This is a good point. Yeah. <laughs> and it can be right? musically, it can be, be all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You can put yourself out in nature. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely not an essentialist. I do think people have learning preferences. Mm -hmm. I prefer to like listen to a podcast or watch a video Mm -hmm. or read. I'm a big reader. Mm -hmm. I really hate when someone reads something out loud to me. (laughs) I really hate it. It's so hard for me. Or if somebody tells me something like, you know, somebody will say, you know, on Saturday, I have to do this or that at this time. If you just tell me that, I am not going to remember it. But if you write it down and show it to me and I can look or even better if I write it myself somewhere and I see it, then I'm much more likely to remember it. Is that enough for me to say, oh, I'm a visual learner? I don't think so. But for whatever reason, that's the way that I can get it into my my memory. But yeah, in one ear out the other is is a big deal for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It used to baffle me when my students in college would like type everything into their phones. I'm like, you don't have like a little notebook. (laughs) Seeing things in my own handwriting helps me retain information so much better. Yeah. So much. But I think, again, I just think that um, the brain, we're learning so much about how the brain organizes information. So the fact that you're using your own handwriting, like you have a whole huge developed section of your brain dedicated to your own handwriting. That's like highly interconnected and probably spans over multiple parts of your brain. So that is a schema that you have already worked years and years develop in your brain. So by putting information in that handwriting that you're so familiar with, I'm sure it just makes it so much easier for your brain to be like, well, I know where to put this. But if if it's a, a form of text and it's just generic, you know, and it, you don't have that personal rich connection already built in your mind around it, then of course your brain's going to be like, um, I don't know. It's like junk mail, right? <laughs> like, I don't know where this right. goes. Like, yeah. Right. So, right. I mean, in that sense, it makes sense to me that, you know, writing in handwriting, in your own handwriting is easier for you to remember. But the brain is mysterious. We're still learning. It We're is. still learning so much about it. So. And I think that's a big point too, is like, be open, right? Like we are technically in a technology field in instructional design. And so like, we have to be open with, new technology. We have to be open with new research that comes out about neuroscience and cognitive load. And like, that's, that's kind of the the point I want to make is like, just be open. Right. Things change and we have to change with it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you see people talking about it and then your initial reaction might be, no, that's not, there's no way that can be true. But then to just pause and be like, well, let me read a little bit more about this and and see what the research is really saying. On that note, my last question for you is, if you had to pick one movie, book, show, piece of media, whatever, to better help people understand, I'm going to leave it really open for you. You can pick neuroscience, learning myths, any of the things we talked about today. What would you choose as a resource and why? Hmm. For the learning styles thing. So where I learned about the essentialist versus non-essentialist and like how this can be problematic is actually the American Psychological Association just released a paper last year 
called the belief in learning styles myth may be detrimental. And they kind of go into more detail about kind of the things that I was talking about as far as, you know, essentialist versus non-essentialists followers of this theory. So awesome. Well, we'll share that for sure. And thank you for coming on the show and spending time with me today. Thanks for having me, Heidi. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again for joining me on the blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and review us on your favorite podcast platform. I hope you'll tune in again soon.